Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. We're continuing uh, to look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we're essentially, I think we've picked this up by now, realizing that we need to trust Jesus to be our guide uh, for what it means to live a good life and what it means to be a good person. Jesus is essentially trying to show us that that means, well, that this is far more than just keeping external laws. And Jesus gives us numerous illustrations of this, and we will be looking at them, but let's get a visual around it again. Here's the external laws, at least the first three Jesus will deal with. And uh, Jesus is essentially saying that rather than just worry about crossing the line and committing some sin, that there are heart issues because our hearts can do lots of damage to people long before we ever cross this line. And so when we talk about being a good person, we're we're talking about the transformation of the heart. And when we're talking about the good life, we're talking about a life that treats people better than just the external laws. We, We could treat people a whole lot better before we ever cross this line, and that's what it means to live the good life. So last week, we looked at the first one, which, uh, the murder, which is, as was read, about anger. And we said it has to be the first because it relates to all of us, impacts all of our relationships. You get this right, and you get tons of other evils, you know, to go away. And what we essentially said about anger is that anger is not capable of producing the good that God desires. So we sort of have this continuum we created. When you have anger, anger sort of anger and murder are they're the same thing in Jesus' mind. Because anger always creates, just call them these little deaths. Any kind of hate or bitterness, you know, or actions to harm anybody mentally, emotionally, physically, or any case. Uh, The moment anger is our guide, it's on a continuum to murder. And so there are lots of little ways we destroy each other before we actually take somebody's life. And so what we said last week was there's got to be some other way the heart can function to get us on a different line that doesn't lead to murder, doesn't need, lead to death, leads to life. It's life-giving. Uh, so anger is destructive. So whenever you get angry, it's a signal something's gone wrong at some level, and it may, may be legitimate. But to act out of that anger won't get you anywhere God wants you to go. There has to be some other guide. Uh, Now, this is a must, by the way. 
I mean, you just think about these two realities right here. I mean, without this one, without some other way to relate, I mean, we're just never going to get along. I mean, we're all flawed. We all hurt each other. And we all arouse and make each other angry. So without an alternative, we're just sort of doomed. I mean, if that's the only way we deal with each other, we're in, we're in big trouble. And we're going to have to live with all sorts of unsolvable problems and unspeakable evil. So Jesus, in this text now that we're going to look at, the second half of this passage, gives us two illustrations of what it looks like to have a transformed heart, to live on this line, to live on this line instead of that line, what a kingdom heart looks like. We saw the text. Let's look at them. Here's the first illustration. Let's say you're in a very, very sacred situation, and you're offering a gift to God. This would have been in Jerusalem. This would have been a very, very sacred moment when it was your turn to go into the inner court and offer a gift to God. Very, very sacred, solemn kind of moment that demanded all kinds of uh, preparation. Just travel to Jerusalem because it was the only spot you could do it. So wherever you lived, you had to make arrangements. This was days of arrangements. By the time you got to this moment, a great deal had occurred, and it was very sacred. But let's say you're sitting there, and it's your turn, and you come to the altar. But then you remember that your brother has something against you. You leave your gift there before the altar, and you go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So that's the first illustration. The second illustration is come to terms quickly with your accuser. This is a whole different kind of setting, legal setting. Uh, you're on your way to court. You've, you've done something that somebody wants to sue you for. You owe something. You've done some damage. And so you're, on your, you're going to court, and your accuser uh, is likely going to hand you over to a judge. You probably owe a debt. That's probably what is going on here. You owe a debt, and the way they handled debt back then is they would, you'd go to a trial. And if, you, if the debt was legitimate, you went to jail till you paid it. And the judge... You're going to get handed over to a judge. A judge is going to hand you to a guard. A guard's going to put you in prison. You can see the detail of this. We'll see that in a minute. And truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. So these are our sort of two illustrations. And what you have is a brother or an adversary. This is a uh, pretty broad scope. But before we get into the details of it, Let's make two simple observations first, two simple ones. Uh, first of all, relational breakdown is a given. So Jesus has talked about anger up here, but now he's given us two illustrations of relational breakdown, and he's 
essentially saying it's a given. Human relationships are always breaking down, and they need constant repair. Have you found that to be true in your life? I mean, they just need constant repair. That's the first thing, and Jesus is well aware of that. Second thing is, he gives little time, little time in this text for psychoanalyzing anger or psychoprojecting on the other person. Uh, where you, where you want to take a lot of time to look underneath or justify or rationalize the things we say to ourselves when relationships are in disrepair. All the things that you say to yourself that keep you in that disrepair. And you analyze it and you analyze it, but you never do anything about it. But you justify your anger and the reasons why you're going to stay put in that anger. That's the psychoanalyzing. So we play a lot of head games. Jesus has no time for it. Uh, he also doesn't psycho-project, which means, well, I know how they're going to respond, so that's why I'm not doing anything. I know what they're going to say, and I know what they're going to do, and I know what, and that's a lot of reasons why we don't. We either justify ourselves or we think for the other person. You know, they'll never, they won't. Uh, Jesus doesn't have time for either one of those. Now, you've got these two illustrations. You have the brother and the adversary. So you've got all relationships matter, whether they're close or whether they're an enemy. That's the first thing Jesus is going to say. Because now what we're looking at is this is the kingdom heart. The, the kingdom heart doesn't matter if this guy's close to me or he isn't close to me. And then there's reconcile and settle. Sometimes you have to really reconnect with somebody and get close again. Sometimes you just got to settle the matter so there's not something between you. You don't have to be best friends with your adversary. You just have to settle the matter. So there's a large scope of we've got to get this relationship healthy again and thriving and we got to go. And there's also the we just need to make this right so neither one of us are at a loss even though we're not going to necessarily hang out. Either one of those. So uh, that's really important. Then the other, one of them is sort of devotional. It's a ritual. It's sacred. My heart is drawn to do it. The other one is sort of legal, uh, where I'm bound. Something's demanded of me. Whereas here I'm sort of drawn to do it. I'm free. So in this particular place, I'm in a good spot. But in the other one, I'm not in so good a spot in the legal matter. I mean, I could be in big trouble. So either, either one of those. So these are really intense moments, and intense moments that you could easily justify why you're not going to go make things right. Well, I've got something spiritual to do. That's, you'll, come up with a good, you'll come up with a reason legal side, you'd just be like, well, I mean, I got all this coming down on my head. I don't know what's going to happen, and you could be fearful. Either way, it's going to be very inconvenient and very disruptive for you to go and try to solve the problem. Uh, it would be very much, you'd say, how, how much of a ritual... How, 
it's really hard for us to grasp what a sacred moment it would have been to be at the altar and offer a gift. But it would be very much like imagining, here's probably the best way to illustrate it, at least right now today, is imagine these families up here about to dedicate. Do you know they have to take classes weeks ahead? Then they have to invite family. Then they got to prepare a dinner after because you know it's a big deal. It's an ordeal to have your kids. It's a big preparations. Imagine they get up here with their kids. They're finally dressed nice. The aggravation of getting your kids up early, prepared to be in here on a Sunday morning, and then get them there. And imagine one of the, one of the adults here realizes they got a bad relationship, and they stop the whole process and go, I'm sorry, i got to go deal with a person real fast. Uh, sorry for the inconvenience. That's how disruptive we're talking about. So it's pretty radical. And then there are uh, a number of actions. So you got the dynamics are broad. It's broad spectrum. Essentially saying, I don't care what you're doing, and I don't care what, how the person is related to you. If there's an issue, an issue, we need to solve it. It's relationships and people matter more than anything going on. And then there are three actions in this order. There's a number of actions actually in this text, but I, I bro- broke them down into the first is action is get up and go. Let's see if we can look at the text real quick. Uh, so if you're offering your gift and you remember a brother something against you, here's the first one. Leave it uh, and go. So this is stop whatever it is you're doing, get up. This is get up and go. And then be reconciled. Then offer. So you've got get up and go. That's the first actions. Uh, Then there is, in the next idea is first. It should be your priority. So that's what the kingdom heart looks like. The first thing it thinks about is the relationships and it acts to deal with them. And then in the next text, you get an interesting word. Uh, At what pace does God want you to move? You know? Pretty quick. So it's get up and go. Uh, Do it first. Do it fast. Sort of what you get from that. And fast is really important when it comes to anger. I don't know if we talk about pace enough when it comes to healing relationships. We can't drag it out too long because it just gives anger too much opportunity. The devil, remember in Ephesians 4, devil gets a lot of opportunity when anger lingers. And so speed is an important factor in dealing with broken relationships. That's why there's no time not... An immense amount of time for psychoanalyzing and psychoprojecting. Just get up and get over there. We'll talk about what happens when you get there in a second. Uh, but this is what a kingdom heart looks like. It's got a broad range of concern for relationships. It has a priority for these relationships. It values them. And uh, so whether it's a sacred situation or a scary situation like legal matters. Um, so no matter what, a heart like this has to let go of 
bitterness, hostility. It has to end any kind of mental, emotional, or physical fuel put toward keeping the relationship apart has to end. And this, this is sort of uh, what that heart looks like. It doesn't need, it's not worried about being right. It's not worried about winning. It doesn't know what the outcome will be. But you're trusting God for the outcome. Just get there. Get up and go. Uh, so anger is not guiding this heart. Love is guiding this heart because it just loves, for re- it loves reconciliation. It longs for it. Uh, it doesn't want, this is important, it doesn't want anyone to be eat up with anger. In other words, God doesn't only want, the, the kingdom heart is not only worried about the anger in it, it's also worried about the anger in other people. And you don't want to be the person, I don't want to be the person who contributes to anyone else's anger issue. Now that involves, by the way, not instigating anger in people. Some of us like to see people angry. And we do things just to make them angry. And you set people off when you do that. So the kingdom heart is not only concerned about the anger in its heart, it doesn't want to do anything to its spouse, to the guy driving in a car by him, that makes them angry. It doesn't want to see anger functioning anywhere in anyone. And let me tell you something about that heart. You don't have to give it rules. You don't have to tell it not to murder. This is what Jesus meant about writing the law in your heart. And, and Jesus is saying, but if I can get your heart to, to treat people that way, I'll never have to tell you not to murder them. Because you don't want to hurt them at all in any way. You don't want their anger operating in any way. You don't want your anger operating that way. So it instinctively acts on behalf of others. And this is why it goes way past the rules uh, when we're dealing with people. There's just no limits to it. There's no limits to the love. It just goes way past that. Way past sort of murder. Now, there is something interesting to notice about uh, this text. I spent most of my time trying to because I think the spiritual one, I think we would get, you can, you can wrap your heads around. Uh, this one here, this legal one, it's uh, kind of intriguing because you have an accuser, you have a judge, you have a guard. You've got a lot of detail Jesus gives into this sort of scenario here. Uh, and then the verbs of what happens, what could potentially happen to a person if this relationship goes bad. You have... Uh, your accuser hands you over. Um, you never get out uh, until you've paid the last debt. You're put in prison. There's like four verbs here of what's going to happen to you. It's like Jesus is really drawing out uh, the possibilities of what could happen in this legal process. And it's a picture uh, it's a picture of a system. 
sort of the way the world deals with disruptions in relationships and violations. Uh, and even though it's a necessary kind of system, you see a, saint, a, a, a chain of consequences set in motion that you don't have any control over. In other words, if you don't get this relationship right, and this is really a great picture, if you don't get this relationship right, there's a whole lot of things that it triggers and causes. You don't e- we don't even always know what they are or how far this thing can get messed up. But the kingdom heart's aware of it, doesn't want all those horrible things to sort of happen. There's a price to be paid is the point. I mean, right down to the last penny, you're going you're gonna to pay it right down to the last penny. You're going to be drained by the time this is done. It's a graphic picture. So Jesus is essentially saying, rather than let that system take its course, give my way a chance. Give my way a chance. That's what the kingdom heart would. And I think um, Willard was the only person to give a sentence on this that's just profound to me. He says, stand in the reality of the kingdom. Don't stand in the, in the world's way of handling things in their system. Stand in the reality of the kingdom. Use its resources because things are different there. Don't limit yourselves to the human system. You just end up bitter and drained. You say, what does it mean to seek the kingdom first? And it's goodness or righteousness. What does that look like? It means saying, well, I can just, I can let one way operate or I can, I can seek the kingdom's way. I'm going to venture out on the kingdom. I'm going to trust Jesus' way of handling the matter. Because it will bring about far more good than this. How do you get a heart? How do you get a heart like this? Well, sort of at the core of, this gets right to the core of Christianity. And this is the reason why I think anger is the first one he addresses. Because it gets right to the core of Christianity and the crux of the Christian life. The answer to it, in short, let me show you how and why, is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. It's the ultimate weapon against anger. You say, I'd like to really deal with my anger. Become a forgiving person. That's it. That's the bottom line. You don't get any more deep, any more rooted than that. So in Matthew 6... Part of the kingdom person, when he prays, he prays for his debts to be forgiven and to forgive other people's debts. And then at the end of, do you know, remember, at the end of the prayer, Jesus will circle back to the prayer thing again. Do you realize that? This is what he says after that. Right after he just said the Lord's Prayer. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But look what he says if you don't. You won't be forgiven. Now, this concept is pretty radical. And it's not only there. It's lots of places 
This is what he says in Matthew 18. Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. What did he do? Threw that guy in jail. Guy owed a debt. Remember the parable? Guy owed a debt in Matthew 18. He gets forgiven his debt, and then he doesn't forgive the debt of somebody else. Well, the higher up fella sends his guards out to grab that guy and say, what do you mean? You, you got your debt forgiven, which was a bigger debt, and then you didn't forgive this guy his smaller debt? He, he gets thrown into prison, and you can read the text yourself. It's not good what happens to that guy. And look at what Jesus says. Father, do the same to you. Now, that's pretty radical. Look at uh, Mark. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. You go to prayer, start first thing, forgiving people. You know how you ask for forgiveness when you pray all the time? This text says, no, 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 when you're standing there, think about who you need to forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father, who is in heaven, will forgive you too. It's incredible text, incredible thought. And so let me say something about that. Uh, because there's, uh, there's this thought, and w- when we read these texts, rather than really swallow it, our mind goes this, like this. Well, does that mean if I don't forgive somebody, Jesus is not going to forgive me, and I'm, gonna, I'm not saved, and it's not saved by grace, it works? Does that mean I have to earn my salvation? You're just going to get all uppity theological, like God doesn't understand theology. That's not what's going on here. This is what is going on there, and God is making it as plain as day. Once you receive forgiveness, you lose all claim to withhold forgiveness to anyone else. That's just a fact, Jack. You can take your theology and read it all day long. This is devastating. Okay? To Jesus, it's not psychologically possible to receive forgiveness at the level he offers it and then not be able to give it to someone else. It's, not, they, it's impossible to coexist. Because it must mean, it must mean either you refused the forgiveness God gave you or for some reason you're incapable of receiving it. Because the heart that has received it can't withhold it. There is an inherent connection between the two that is so obvious that needing it and offering it go together. They're not one and then the other. This is at the bottom of Jesus' response in Matthew 18. When Peter asks him, How many times should I forgive? Peter comes up in Matthew 18 after that parable, or right before the parable, makes Jesus say the parable. How often should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Because this is a good question. This is one of those, well, what what about that? This is one of those kind of questions. And I forgive him uh, seven times, which, you know, at the day, the rabbinic thought at the day was, you know, three times is a lot to forgive somebody. Well, Peter goes to seven What if I do it seven times, assuming he's being very generous in the forgiving thing? Let me tell you, has anybody in this room needed forgiveness more than seven times? 
I'm going to tell you right now, that right there would kill us all. We'd all be dead if seven was the limit. Peter thinks he's being generous. Jesus says to him, I don't say to you seven. I say to you 77. This is not seven times 70. It's 77 times. 77 times. Now, what is Jesus doing with this? And what's the connection between forgiveness and anger? Well, Jesus just made it. You say, yeah, how how is forgiveness the answer to anger? Jesus did it as soon as he said 77 times. Now, you know why? We go back to Genesis. Isn't it funny how when you deal with the murder and anger issue, you keep got to go back to Genesis, to Genesis 4 every time? Let's go back to Genesis 4 again. Lemech. Remember what we said? Anger was sort of, the, sort of the pinnacle and dominant sin that made everything else go south after, uh, after the fall, after they were kicked out of the garden. Here's Lemech. Here's a guy. He says, he says to his wives, this is a great husband. You're going to love this guy, ladies. Ada and Zillah, all right? Hear my voice, you wives of Lemek. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. He's just very excited about his anger. He's very proud of it. And uh, he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemek's is 77-fold. So all that's happened is we got anger is one way to do life. You can just unleash it on people. What's the opposite? Forgiveness. It's letting people off the hook. That's what Jesus is saying. This is hyperbole. It's not... This is, Jesus wasn't trying to get you to do math or to be, you know, to calculate things. Stop counting how many times you have to forgive a person. Have you ever done that, by the way? I think this is like 33, and I can't handle it anymore. <laughs> or I'm at 77. 78, you're done. You are done, buddy. Even that wouldn't be enough for us. Jesus is not trying to get you to do math. This is about an approach to life. You have two options on approaching life. You can be forgiving. That's the kingdom heart. Or you can be just the opposite. Uh, You're going to make everybody who crosses you in life pay. And you spend your life making everybody pay. There's two different approaches to life. It's two different approaches to life. So Jesus transforms Lemek's anger into a principle of forgiveness. Not an isolated practice or singular event. It's embedded in a way of life. Part of a larger strategy that kingdom people have to sort of squelch evil. It's how we go about defeating evil every day. One commentator said, those who are in the kingdom are themselves caught up in a system of grace and forgiveness. They're caught up in that system, and so their heart naturally 
does the same. In an article by Barbara Brown Taylor, she wrote uh, Why We Love This Deadly Sin. She said, forgiveness is an act of transformation. It's not just an act. It's an act of transformation. It doesn't offer the adrenaline rush of anger nor the feeling of power that comes from a well-established resentment. It's a quiet revolution, she says. As easy to miss as a fist uncurling to become an open hand. But it changes people in ways that anger only wishes it could. So forgiveness, to put this real quickly here, is just you let people off the hook. At the end of the day, you're letting people off the hook who cross you. Uh, You don't wish harm, and you don't inflict harm. And not only that, withholding evil, you offer good to those same people. In other words, you can actually do something nice for them because you've forgiven them. You don't just not hurt them, you also help them. That's essentially what happens when forgiveness has happened. Um, Now, here's the interesting thing. Jesus does not show us, and I just want to wrap this up by saying this. Jesus doesn't show us what happens after the guy leaves his gift and gets to the person. And he doesn't show us what happens after the guy goes to the court and tries to catch his adversary. He doesn't show us what happens there. In Jesus' mind, the kingdom heart can't help themselves. they got to get there. What happens afterwards, God says, just let my kingdom have its way. He doesn't tell you to be in charge of the outcomes. You can't control what other people do. The guy at the court, the adversary, could have easily just said, get away from me. I'm taking you to court, and that's it, and that's all you could do. You just wanted to let him know you're sorry, and how in the world could I make this right that you would feel happy about it so we don't have to go to court? How can I settle this in a way that would make you feel like you had been righted? It may not work. May not work at all. Um, and because, because at this point it gets really complicated. Can't control people, processes. There's lots of what ifs and what abouts. Um, at the end of the day, uh, there's no straightforward form of conduct. You don't know any of the details. Does it always mean you have to leave your gift and go? Not always. Jesus isn't drawing laws because, I mean, he's all against drawing a law and being legalistic. He's just saying the thought is, is that a person would want to do that. Do you have, sometimes have to take somebody to court? Yes, sometimes you have to take somebody to court. Yes, sometimes you have to be taken to court. doesn't mean you can't go to court. There's no rules here. Don't turn it into legalism. It's just a much more demanding way of life because we want all everything to be really simple. Well, relationships are messy. Jesus says just get in there, enter the mess. Listen, kingdom people know they can enter the mess and trust God to deal with the other pieces. That's what kingdom people know. That's why they make the move toward people. Even though it's not always clear, it's very complicated sometimes. Sometimes you've got to really deal with hurt. You just, it's just, 
crazy kinds of stuff. But the kingdom heart, essentially, I just jotted down these three sort of characteristics as a summary. Number one, the kingdom heart, first of all, knows how desperate it needs grace and forgiveness. If you don't know that, you'll never get over anger. If you don't know somebody paid an incredibly infinite price for you to be forgiven, you will never be a forgiver. Anger will always be your default. The reason is, is you have to protect yourself somehow. When you're forgiven, you don't have to, you don't have to use anger to, to protect yourself when you're forgiven. You don't have to use anger to hurt people. You don't have to make, use anger to make yourself feel powerful. You don't need anger the way you did when Jesus came into your life. You don't need it anymore. So that's the first thing. And I think it's a really good thing to have the mindset of Paul in this case. Consider yourself the worst sinner ever, and you'll have an idea of the forgiveness you needed, even if you're maybe not in your mind as bad as every other people. You ought to live with the idea that you are the hardest person in the world to forgive. Because if you don't, you're going to make everybody in your life pay because you didn't deserve it. Second thing, the logic, the logic in our heads, and by, by the way, we have built an entire rational framework around why we are going to let some people just stay in that disharmony and, and, and disrupted way in our relationship. There is a reason why this will never happen. That logic is gone in a kingdom heart. Because we're thinking about keeping ourselves from being harmed, and also we don't want somebody else to be harmed. We don't want them to live and to cause problems because our relationship isn't good. It causes relationships. It's a great thing to remember. Parents, don't put your kids on the outs and then make them terrible spouses. Spouses, don't do it to your parents and make them terrible spouses. We do it to each other. We make each other worse than we are or want to be. And the final thing is, it just prioritizes God's purposes and it uses God's resources because it doesn't want any future harm. How can we, and right now I think this is sort of, how can, we, how can we right now in a situation in our lives offer forgiveness that stops the destruction? Close with this. My, uh, so my father was an angry man. And it made him, it, was, it characterized him. He was scary. Um... It wasn't until I was older that I understood why. He actually had good reasons for being angry, like most of us do. He became an addict. He became uh, destructive and uh, abusive. And the scariest thing in my life as a kid was my dad. He physically hurt my mom. 
we had to wake him up with a broomstick because he woke up angry. Um, by the, he was sleeping around. This, we were young. I was young. When my second sister was born, Danae, my, uh, my mom's third child, my mom left the hospital earlier than she should have because she knew he was sleeping with somebody, found her in bed with, his best, with her best friend, found him in bed. That led to a divorce. My father disappeared from our lives. It didn't help raise the kids, not financially, not otherwise. And it made life for my mother with these three kids extremely difficult. And I remember coming home from school in eighth grade, hearing my mother cry in the back room, going in there, and I said, what's wrong? And she just handed me the phone, and on the other end of it was my dad, this man who had not been in our lives, who had not helped my mother in any way, not parenting or financially, not emotionally or any way, was on the other end of the phone in L.A., had to run from Miami, just got beat up, 31 years old, weighed about 129 pounds, didn't think he was going to live, hadn't had solid food in 30 days. This is a desperate man who, because he's so miserable, destroyed every relationship he has, the only person he could reach out to for help was my mother. How bad of a, how, how much of the bottom have you hit? This lady's going to help you? Well, my mother was bawling that day. She hung up the phone with my dad, and she found the rehab center, took him to the rehab center. When he ran away, took him back to the, helped find him and took him back to the rehab center. That eventually led to my father finding Christ in there. My mother said, well, why don't you guys? She was willing to let us go, all three of us go live with him when he graduated from that. So I was going into 10th grade a year, year and a half later. Let us move in with him. Because of that, I found Christ. And the tra- trajectory of my whole life changed. One act of forgiveness, incredibly undeserved, ended a cycle of destruction because I don't know where I would have gone and changed literally the direction of everything and my mother had to absorb the pain and she paid a high price for forgiveness she lost me I ended up staying with my dad which crushed her but she didn't show it That's what the kingdom heart knows. That's what the kingdom heart wants. And that's what the kingdom heart goes after. Because it has been infused with forgiveness, because a high price has been paid for it, they're willing to pay a high price to let other people off the hook and stop the harm. This is what Jesus is getting. And if we don't deal with this, listen to me, the rest of the sermon's irrelevant. Father, we come before you desperate. We hear this and we go, that's the heart we want. 
In fact, Hillside, look at me real quick before we do this. If you're you're mad at yourself right now, you might be mad, and you might be mad at yourself. And that's okay. That's okay. Here's the most important thing. Here's the most important question to ask today. Not how much damage have I done, because you have. Let's just face it. We've all done it. Let's ask this question. How bad of, how, how much, how badly do you want this heart, though? Enough to let Jesus forgive you right now? And then enough to say, I'll start forgiving people in my life. That's the only thing that matters today. Don't beat yourself up so bad you can't breathe and you can't move. We're all a mess. I want that heart. Do you want that heart? That's what I'm going to pray for, God. We are. We have not done this right. Most of us have not done this right. But we want to give us this heart. And it begins with recognizing the fact that you have forgiven us. How blessed we are for that. If you need that forgiveness today, you can ask Jesus into your heart right now. And he will change your life. He'll heal that heart. We have people in corners over here who will pray with you after the service.